Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and today we are discussing the COVID-19 pandemic and governor's responses to it across the country. I'm joined today by three guests. First, we will be talking with Miranda Cascio, who is an instructor of nursing at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. She also works as a registered nurse in the emergency department at a local community hospital here in Southwestern Virginia. We are also joined by Andrew Sanders, who is an assistant professor of political science at Texas A&M University, San Antonio. His research and teaching focuses on conflict and conflict resolution and Texas politics. Our third and final guest is Gail Helt, who spent nearly a dozen years as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency focused on China and also spent two years supporting President Obama's effort to transfer detainees from Guantanamo ahead of its intended closure. Professor Helt's research interests include democratization, human rights, and Asian politics. So let me begin first by thanking all three guests for being on this program today. And I actually want to begin with discussing how COVID-19 is is going here in Southwest Virginia. Miranda, so my first question is for you as someone in the healthcare industry. What are you seeing in your position as a registered nurse working at a community hospital here in Southwest Virginia when it comes to COVID cases? Well, Heather, I think what we're seeing in Southwest Virginia is really paralleling what we're seeing nationwide. I think the majority of people know at this point that in mid-June, overall COVID cases had fallen relatively low. In Southwest Virginia, our average, um, seven-day average daily case rate was only one to two individuals, even up until the end of July. In that month time span for Wise County, where the University of Virginia's College at Wise is, daily case rates have gone from two to 19, which, you know, I realize in the scheme of things, it's not that many individuals, certainly not at the levels you're seeing in, you know, Florida and Louisiana and Texas. But if you're looking at percentages to go from two to 19 is a several hundred percent increase. And just to put that into a little bit more of a frame of reference, in June, the average cases for Southwest Virginia as a whole were about 10 cases a day. And now we're seeing upwards of 150 cases a day in Southwest Virginia. So again, that same increase that we're seeing, not just in Wise County, where the college is located, but across the region. And then it's also paralleling what we're seeing nationwide. The difference with this Delta variant that's different than some of the cases we saw in 2020 is, well, a couple of different things. We're seeing more pediatric cases. Um, so individuals under the age of 18, still not a huge percentage of the population, but we are seeing um, several cases in that population. And then again, the breakthrough cases for people that are vaccinated, those are representing a an increasing number of the positive cases, uh, just the positive test cases. Luckily, we are seeing that vaccinated individuals are not who we're seeing in the hospital. They're not the ones that are being admitted. Really, the high percentage of those hospitalizations are people that are unvaccinated. You know, let that be a case for going out and getting the vaccine if you have not already. As far as trends go, for overall positive cases, really the age group that we're seeing the most positive cases is the 20 to 60 year olds actually have the highest 
total overall positive cases. Hospitalizations are skewing a little bit higher on the age range. So 40 to 80 plus are the population that's being hospitalized. And then overall deaths are again, a little bit higher. 50 to 80 year olds plus is who we're seeing dying from COVID-19. And again, that trend mirrors exactly what we're seeing nationwide. So every age group is being affected, especially with this new Delta variant everywhere from babies all the way up until the extremely elderly population. So as a registered nurse, I'm definitely seeing, you know, when my shift's in the emergency room, I'm seeing a lot of people coming in for COVID-related symptoms, people coming in just wanting to get tested. A lot of the people that I'm seeing are people that are not vaccinated and are not wearing masks and following social distance guidelines. Ballot Healthcare, which is the hospital chain that serves you know, 21 counties in Southwest Virginia and Northeast Tennessee, they've, their positive rate for testing is has increased to 16% in the past seven days. And the main thing that they are seeing is the amount of patients that, were, that are requiring a ventilator has increased something like 250% just in the last 15 days. And also their pediatric population has doubled in something like 500% as far as pediatric patients that are requiring hospitalization over the last 15 days. So the Delta variant is definitely hitting this area very hard. And we've got the data to show that, you know, our numbers are really increasing. Have you seen an increase in children, especially given back to school? We have seen an increase in positive cases for those pediatric patients that are being brought in for symptoms and for testing. At our particular location, you know, luckily we have not had serious pediatric patients that require hospitalization or transfer to a larger status hospital. But I can tell you as somebody who has kids in primary and middle school in Southwest Virginia, I think just in our school system, um, we have received five or six separate COVID-19 notices over the past two weeks indicating pediatric positive cases. Whereas last year, all of last year, there was one pediatric case in my son's middle school and no pediatric cases in my daughter's primary school. And that's just two weeks in with mask mandates. I know exactly how you feel about that. My children are also back at school in Washington County. And they've been at school now for two weeks. And out of those two weeks, we've received a notice across eight days. And that's just one elementary school in the county. And so I can't, you know, I can't even imagine how many cases there are throughout the county or even throughout the region. Now I would like to shift gears only slightly to what we're seeing in multiple states regarding different types of policies when it comes to mask mandates. While most states allow school districts to determine their own mask policies, some have fallen on either side of the debate. Some in places like California, Louisiana, and Virginia have moved to require masks in schools for most students this fall. In other states that have barred masks, leaders say it should be up to families to decide. So how are specific governors dealing with the pandemic now that we have more contagious variants of the virus that are affecting kids? So for this general conversation, I'm first gonna to turn to Andrew Sanders who is an assistant professor of political science at Texas A&M University, San Antonio. So Andrew, you're in Texas. How's it going? Yes. Well, well, Heather, one of the first things I would say that Governor Abbott is actually dealing with COVID-19 himself. 
he tested positive quite recently. He posted on social media, I believe today, that he has since tested negative. But in between those two tests, he was receiving monoclonal antibodies, which we know is a treatment that is only offered to people who have a particular risk of becoming particularly sick from COVID-19. So a lot of people, particularly within the Texas Democrats, have been expressing frustrations at that. And there's been this hashtag must be nice because Abbott was able to receive all this additional treatment that isn't freely available to any other Texan. So Abbott's approach to mask mandates in particular has evolved throughout the pandemic. Initially, he started off implementing restrictions, as I think quite a lot of states did. And that included things like fixed capacity on um, on restaurants at the point that they were actually allowed to open. And obviously, it took a while to get them open in the first place. And then mask mandates were in place. But in recent months, especially since the vaccine has been available across Texas, we've really seen very little in the way of state policy, other than to say you aren't allowed to implement mask mandates. And that's been the big issue in Texas over the last couple of weeks as K through 12 schools start to go back. Our own district in San Antonio was one of the first in the state to go back. And we were going back amongst other schools that preceded us with reports of dozens of cases across school districts, some schools having to close classes essentially because there there was so much COVID positivity within those classrooms. And the governor resisted mask mandates. So districts across the state had to try and figure this out because we were one of the first to go back our superintendent decided that we would have a mask opt-out. He figured that this was legal, that we weren't creating an obstacle, that parents could just sign a form and send it in and their kid would not have to wear a mask. But otherwise, all kids arriving on campus would be given a mask and expected to wear it. That lasted for a couple of days, at which point the city of San Antonio and Bear County actually issued a temporary restraining order through the Bayer County Courts, which allowed them to issue mask mandates or empower the school districts to issue mask mandates, which they then did. Abbott, through the Attorney General Ken Paxton, they then appealed this. To cut a long story short, this case in San Antonio is going to be heard in December. The Texas Supreme Court actually ruled against Abbott. They said that essentially the the governor's argument that there, there was not enough time for him to go through the proper appeals process and he had to go straight to the Supreme Court, that that didn't stand. So the the case is going to be heard in San Antonio in December. As of right now, school districts across Texas are free to implement mask mandates. And that's kind of where we are at this point. So Florida and Texas combined make up about 15% of the U.S. population. But at the last estimates, they make up about 28% of the U.S. recent COVID-19 cases. Now, this is according to the CDC, and both states have seen their hospitalization numbers skyrocket over the past two months. So my question is, given these statistics, how is Governor Abbott making a case for no mask mandate? Well, his his rhetoric is really centered on this idea that Texans have learned the good practices that we need to implement in our daily lives to avoid COVID. Now, obviously he caught COVID, so that tells you something about how successful he's been at implementing those same best practices. Obviously, one of the key points here is that if I decide to send my kids to school not wearing a mask, I'm not making that decision just for me. I'm making that decision for everyone that they come into contact with, right? And we know that a kid wearing a mask, it doesn't necessarily give them the same kind of protection 
as there would be if both kids in any interaction had a mask on or if there was a face shield or whatever else in place. This falls back on this ever reliable idea of personal responsibility. So I'm capable of making the best decisions for me and my family and kind of ignoring the realities of society, right? That we interact with other people in society. And really it kind of comes back to this, I would call it a sort of pseudo liberal libertarianism that Abbott likes to lean on. But a lot of this is actually influenced from pressure within his own party. You bring up something really interesting about partisanship and how partisanship is driving the governor's responses to this crisis across the country. So in that vein, I would like to turn now to Professor Helt, uh, Gail Helt, who lives in Tennessee. So Gail, tell us, how is your governor responding to this pandemic? Um, Tennessee is not responding well to, to this crisis. Uh, governor Lee also takes the, the personal responsibility approach, right? Parents should be trusted to decide for themselves what is best for their children. Well, that's great, except in some, on so many levels, you know, the, the state mandates certain things that, that parents must do to protect their children. They, they are forced to put them in car seats and seat belts and to get measles vaccinations and to go to school, right? Or at least to have record of where they're, of what curriculum they're being taught at home. And, you know, the, the notion that the state should be able to expect a parent to send their child with a mask to school during an epidemic. I don't think that that's really that far out of bounds, but apparently Governor Lee does, and it makes absolutely no sense. Um, like Miranda was saying, numbers here are skyrocketing. I have a lot of friends who have children. I don't have children here uh, in, 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 well, I don't have children. So of course I don't have children in, in Tennessee schools, <laughs> but, but um, my, my friends are getting notes all the time. Your child was exposed. Your child may have been exposed. There was a case here um, in this classroom and I have friends right now whose kids are, are either quarantining because of it or have actually contracted it at school, even though they themselves were, were masked. Because what they tell me is that when they go into the classrooms, very few of their friends are, are wearing these. One of my friend's children was the only person in her fourth grade class who was wearing a mask. And I'm so proud of her for doing that, but her mother's a scientist and she knows better, right? So she knows the importance of, of protecting her friends and people she cares about from a dreaded disease. So there are very few bright spots, and but there are a few, but I don't think it's getting better, right? Just because uh, you hear a couple of, of, of good stories like that, the general trajectory is, is pretty abysmal. Um, numbers are going up a lot. I think the numbers were, there, there's like four babies in, on ventilators throughout the ballot system right now, um, not to mention all the ones who are in ICU. It's, it's just it's hideous. And, and there's no explanation for it other than, and this is me, you know, kind of speculating, the only gain for Governor Lee here, because basically he's killing his, his supporters, right? The people who generally did not vote for him are the ones who are wearing masks and getting vaccinated. Uh, he's killing his supporters, which makes no sense, unless you want to make yourself look like running mate material for the upcoming 2024 presidential election. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I don't think he has said that. I, have, I mean, I'm sure he would deny it. Um, but if he sees himself mm -hmm. as a potential running mate for maybe a DeSantis or an Abbott, um, he, he's got to compete, right? Those two governors are getting a lot of attention. It's bad attention. Right. They're getting a lot of attention. They're getting their name out there. Name recognition, even if it's for a really bad reason, is still name recognition. 
people may forget why exactly they know your name, but they'll be like, oh yeah, he was a governor of Tennessee. He was, he was a Trump supporter. Sure, I could vote for that guy for president. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of that involved here, not just with Governor Lee, but with, with a lot of these governors who are not doing, uh, who aren't doing the right thing. Yeah, you make a really great point, especially when other governors are being called out by name by the current president of the United States. Now, just to, to pause for just one moment, this is a great conversation. I want to remind our listeners. Hi, everyone. Uh, today, we're talking with Miranda Cascio, who is an instructor of nursing at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. We are also joined by Andrew Sanders, who's an assistant professor of political science at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and Gail Helt, who spent nearly a dozen years as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency focused on China. Um, So we're in the middle of talking about COVID-19, the pandemic, and governor's responses to it. Now, I noticed, Gail, that in Tennessee, there were a group of doctors that also came out to say to Governor Lee, what are you doing, <laughs> right? They, they put together this document and, and they, they came out to read this letter in a video conference that was streamed on Facebook. Do you think that's going to have any effect on his response to the, the pandemic? Sadly, unless those doctors are also large donors to, to his campaigns, uh, no, I don't. I don't think that's going to have any impact. The, the only way it would really is if they were able to sway the opinions of, of voters, of even those, who, those people who vote for, for Governor Lee. If, if those doctors are deemed credible, right, maybe those doctors are known by some people, by, by, by Tennesseans, if they, can, if they can start changing public opinion, that would have the, stand the greatest chance, I think, of swaying uh, Governor Lee on this issue, but the doctors directly, no. I mean, he's dis- he's disregarded science all along, right? He's always refused to do a, a statewide mask mandate, leaving it instead to local um, local jurisdictions to do that. Tennessee's weird; they have a, a state health department that that has jurisdiction over like 95 counties, and then there's five or six counties that are autonomous in their health decisions. I don't know how else to describe that, uh, which seems odd to me. My county, Sullivan County, is one of those that can technically decide for themselves, but uh, there seems to be a lot of, of fear um, in terms of what the governor could do in terms of retribution this time around. He's, he's threatened schools. The speaker of the Tennessee legislature said that he would ask Governor Lee to call a special session to find a way to penalize schools who do implement a mask mandate. So, I mean, it's a pretty hostile situation. Rhythm and Roots, right? Bristol's annual country music celebration. They are, they've had four fairly well-known acts uh, pull out because of the lack of masks and or lack of vaccines that are required. To, to attend. And the um, organizers for Rhythm and Roots have said, oh, look, we've, we respect their decisions and that's great. The show's going to go on. We've, sat, we, we've stepped back. We've considered what it is that we need to do and what we can do. And we don't believe that absent a, man, a mask mandate, a state mask mandate, that we can actually do anything more than, than nothing really, because <laughs> that's what they're doing. So there's this fear, and, and that's a private organization. That's a private festival that has nothing to do, to do with the state. I don't know if it gets state funding. I, I honestly don't know that, but there's no obvious reason why it would need to capitulate to the governor in this way, and yet it has, and, and that's disturbing. So they're, they're going to bring in masses of people into my town, and you know it's going to be a super spreader event because people are going to be packed shoulder to shoulder during, on, the, on the streets of Bristol. There's not going to be, it's not like it's an open field 
right? There, there's not going to be much air moving. It's going to be a mess. And our hospitals, you know, doctors and nurses are already begging us to, to mask up and get vaccinated because they can't take any more. Okay. So this question is actually for you, Gail, and for you, Andrew. In both of these states, do you feel like there's some sort of a magic number that once COVID cases get to this particular point, there's a tipping point and these governors will say, you know what? Yeah, we should probably have mask mandates at the school. Or do you think that we're kind of beyond that, that, that neither of these governors will, will ever institute a mask mandate? Andrew, would you like to take that one first? Sure. Yeah, I think that it's unlikely. Governor Abbott changed his executive order. The previous order actually permitted local control over pandemic mitigation at the point that a district hit 15% of hospitalizations being COVID patients. And we're at about 16% right now, a little more. And the reason we can't do that is because his new executive order removed that privilege, if you like, from the from the local county, from Bear County. I honestly think that Governor Abbott is very deep into the culture wars part of his campaign. And it's regrettable for all of us that mask wearing, vaccination, pandemic mitigation generally has become part of this culture war phenomenon that we're involved in. Obviously, it's quite easy for him to just do nothing and just say, well, I told you to get the vaccine or I recommended you to get the vaccine. But when you tell someone to get the vaccine and then add that it's always voluntary, there's always that get out. Now, the one interesting thing will be at the point when the the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and I believe the Moderna vaccine as well, get full FDA approval. That's the point at where we may see the increased pressure on mandatory vaccinations. You know, all of us work in universities. We have certain mandatory vaccinations, right? Our students have to get the meningitis vaccine to come on campus. Otherwise, too bad. I'm an immigrant coming over to the United States back in 2012. There's a vaccine schedule we have to get. And if you don't fancy getting the vaccine, too bad. You're not coming to the States anymore. Good luck to you. So at the point that the COVID-19 vaccine can become mandated, I think that that will most likely just present more challenges to Governor Abbott. But the fact that he's thrown schools and school children to the fire, essentially, when it comes to the Delta variants of COVID right now, it's really hard to see there being a point where he would change his mind particularly going back to the point we made before, because he does have a, two primary challengers from the far right of his party coming at him saying that he did too much by allowing pandemic mitigation last year. And I think that's probably going to make it very unlikely. And Gail, what do you think about in Tennessee? Is there a, is there a point that you see this shifting for the governor or, or is he in it for the long haul with no mask mandates? I don't know what that would be. It seems like he is in this for the long haul. He's, he's personally invested now, I think. But also, the only thing that I could imagine might inspire him to change course would be if there were, God forbid this happens, a, a significant number of small children dying from this. I do think that that's the one thing that, you, that could get people up in arms enough to start making demands of the governor. Now, whether he's going to be swayed or not uh, by those demands, I don't know. Right. I mean, there's people dying every day as it is. People are, are going on ventilators every day as he as it is. And he doesn't care about that. But usually when little kids are involved, you know, people's hearts tend to soften a little bit. Um, that's the only that's the only thing that I can imagine happening to change um, 
the course of, of what's going to come for the next couple of weeks or months into here in Tennessee. It's, it's, um, it's just disturbing. And I mean, you can see the vitriol, even when it comes to children, there was that school board meeting in Franklin, the one that was all over social media and all over the, the, the news. And you had medical professionals going out and people coming up to their cars, trying to keep them from leaving and saying, we'll come and find you. Not most of those people out there in that parking lot being confrontational weren't even parents with students in that district. There were a lot of people who were just there to score political points. And those are the people whose voices seem to who, who seem to have Billy's ear. Um, and and that's that's dangerous for all of us. That's a great point. And Miranda, coming back to you for a moment and what you're seeing in the healthcare system here in Virginia, where do you see this going over the next month? Have there been requirements for individuals working there to be vaccinated? Um, well, to follow up on what Gail said, I mean, Ballot Health is reporting that 30% of their positive daily cases over the last two weeks have been pediatric patients. So while those pediatric patients, you know, again, like I said earlier, are not being highly hospitalized, although the numbers are higher than they were over 2020, we are seeing a lot more cases. I think what we're going to see is an increase in rates and cases and hospitalizations. There seems to be this pervasive idea, and it it's based a little bit in science that Delta variant, you know, is going to hit a community very hard, but then be over with in, you know, three weeks from now, that somehow we'll have this short-lived spike and then the community will move on from that. It there is some evidence to show that because the Delta variant does spread very quickly, that we will see a much faster spike rate than we have seen with the earlier versions of the virus. But that doesn't mean that, you know, three weeks from now, our population and our communities and our schools are going to be free of getting COVID vaccine. So I think we're going to keep seeing numbers rise as long as you know, vaccination rates st stay low. You know, Appalachian Highlands is only at about a 38% vaccination rate overall, whereas Virginia, I think, is about 55%. So our vaccination rates are really low. Um, local businesses are not mandating mask use or social distancing. So all of those things, I mean, those are things that we know work to prevent the spread of COVID is social distancing, masking, and vaccination. As long as those things are not prioritized and pushed and supported by members of the community, uh, business owners, politicians, and people in power, we're going to we're going to be fighting this pandemic forever, it seems like. And to your question about healthcare in the region, so a couple of weeks ago, Kentucky, a contingent of I think about 10 different hospital providers across Kentucky came out and said that they were going to mandate vaccines for their employees. And two hospital systems that really affect us is Pikeville Medical Center, which is located just north of us in Pikeville, Kentucky, and also ARH, which is directly to the west of us over in Hazard and Harlan, Kentucky. They have stated that they're going to mandate uh, employees to get the COVID vaccine. Ballot Health, as of yet, is not mandating vaccines for their employees and contractors. However, I would anticipate that the leadership of Ballot will be taking a look at that policy once the COVID vaccines get full FDA authorization. It is really interesting to see how this is progressing through the healthcare industry in multiple states. 
Um, Andrew, my actu- my final question is actually for you, and it's about um, Greg Abbott. How is all of this tied to his reelection? Well, one of the things that's happening within the Texas Republican Party is that there's this fairly radical wing that has kind of coalesced around two people, former Texas Republican chair Alan West, who was previously a congressman in Georgia, moved to Texas and eventually became the Texas GOP leader. He subsequently resigned. He wasn't a leader for very long. And the other is a former state senator. And both of these individuals have been pressuring Governor Abbott from the right. Now, Governor Abbott has always been the most popular politician in Texas. Obviously, our statewide politicians are all Republican, and they have been for quite some time. But out of the three main ones, Governor Abbott, Senators Cornyn and Cruz, Governor Abbott always polls really well. One of the things he's been successful at doing is reaching out to moderates. He's always had this moderate appeal. He's always been fairly superficially rational. And what's quite interesting from a political scientist perspective, if we set aside being a Texas resident and having to deal with all the stuff that we've talked about, what's interesting from the political science perspective is that there's a big question about whether or not he's going to retain that center going into the gubernatorial election, which is next year. He might be able to see off his primary challengers, but is he going to be able to see off a particularly high-profile Democratic candidate. So you see a lot of pressure from Texas Democrats on people like Beto O'Rourke, who have pretty significant name recognition, who did very well in a statewide election back in 2018. Other increasingly prominent Democratic figures are people like Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo, who has been one of the leaders of the Texas Democratic efforts throughout the pandemic. She's also, a, she's young, she's a first-term um, judge, but there aren't that many other figures that obviously spring to mind when you think about who might be the Democratic candidate for governor. So there's a lot of pressure on Abbott from the right, whether or not that damages him from the left, insofar as that's a thing, that's something to look at. The other thing which was alluded to in a previous response is, does Abbott have his eye on the Republican nomination for president in 2024? A poll that came out today suggests that he's polling around 1% which is miles behind people like Governor DeSantis in Florida, who's up at about 25%. It's quite far behind Donald Trump Jr. It's quite far behind figures like Nikki Haley, who recently appeared on the on CBC and CNBC News, I believe, to criticize President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. So he's really far behind. And obviously his response to COVID hasn't helped him in any way from a national Republican perspective. And that's going to be something that will pose a significant challenge for Abbott's irrespective of whether or not he retains the state house in 2022. Gosh, there is so much that we could continue talking about today. So thank you all for joining me on this program. And thank you listeners for tuning in to hear a little bit more about COVID-19 and governor's responses to the pandemic. If you missed any piece of the broadcast today, you can listen to this program again at www.wehcfm.com. Dot com.